Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to kick it off with Apple News. We're going to talk about a Bluetooth vulnerability. We're going to talk about Chamberlain making some changes to its subscription plans. We're taking a look at the Tesla crash from last year and discussing how we should engage with autonomous both vehicles and other devices. We've got a little bit on a startup from Jesse Robbins and some other news bits. Plus, we've got our guest this week, who is David Martin of PowerLedger. He's going to be talking about using the blockchain for distributed energy payments. And we've got a question from one of our listeners about security. Plus, ForgeRock is one of our sponsors talking about connected cars. And now let's go to another one of our sponsors, Zively. Did you know that over half of companies who build their own solutions to connect and manage their IoT products say they'd never do it again? Zively offers everything you need to launch and scale your connected product business, including tools to manage devices and users, white label mobile apps, and business integrations to make sure your data is actionable. Don't let the technology sidetrack you from reaching your IoT business goals. Let Zively take care of the IoT so you can take care of your business. Visit Zively.com. That's X-I-V-E-L-Y.com for more information. Alrighty, Kevin, did you watch the Apple keynote product launch news reel slash press conference? The extravaganza. Yes, I did. All two hours of it, which we're not going to discuss in detail a lot of what they talked about, partly because they didn't talk at all about HomeKit, not much about Siri. They didn't mention the HomePod that's coming out as their assistant with speaker. So there isn't like a lot of IoT stuff that came out of that. True. I'm wondering, do you think, so you've watched Apple for a long time, longer than I have. Mm -hmm. So do you think the lack of any messaging around HomeKit or HomePod is indicative of any like lateness for the product, which is supposed to be out in December? I personally think they've had a continued lateness for a lot of their home kit and smart home efforts, quite honestly. And this is, so I'm not surprised. I really did expect that Siri itself, they would show off how much better it's gotten. That was what I was thinking. Okay. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because to me, they've got to get Siri right to get HomePod and make it really competitive. Exactly. Exactly. So they didn't do that. Instead, they focused on the traditional products, Apple TV, iPhones, and Apple Watch. So yeah, maybe they have HomePod event later in the year. And that's when they say, look how great Siri is for this device and all your other devices. I don't know. Okay. I well, don't know. we'll wait and see. We don't have anything definitive yeah. there, but I was surprised. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we talk about wearables, especially with Kevin Tovel, runner extraordinaire on the show. So <laughs> let's talk about the Apple Watch, which did get a big upgrade. It did. Basically, the biggest feature that they're adding is, as rumored, an LTE radio. And I'm actually considering, I'm, this is crazy because I'm not big on paying for additional features and such that I don't use that much, but I'm actually thinking about buying or upgrading my Apple Watch 2 to an Apple Watch 3 with cellular. I believe it adds about $79 to the cost just for that radio edition. And then, of course, it's the service that's really got me kind of hung up because it, I was hoping to be like five bucks a month at most. Unfortunately, it looks like all the carriers are going to, at least in the U.S., are going to offer three months of free service to try it, and then it will be $10 per month going forward. And the thing is, it will use the same phone number as your Apple phone, which is convenient. That's great. But there's a couple issues. One, battery life. We're going to talk about that in a second. And two, is it really worth adding an LTE option for $10 a month on something that's going to use such little data? I mean, they charge $10 a month to add a tablet where with the big screen, you're going to use gobs of data. There's just a disparity there that I'm not comfortable with. So. That's because you understand data rates. Now, most people, mm -hmm. and this is what the cellular carriers are counting on, is mm -hmm. they're like, oh, look, I have always on access to music and whatever on my watch when I'm out of Wi-Fi or when I don't have my phone with me. Right. Is that worth $10 a month to you? I bet most people say no. I really do. I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, it, it's a personal choice, obviously, because the question is, are you doing something that you need your phone with you or you can leave it behind? And in my particular use case, I run every day. And I also now I ride out small scooter, motorcycle type device. And having my phone with me, of course, in emergency is important in either of those cases. But 
if I can have the added convenience of leaving the phone behind, if I am in an emergency situation and just make a call for my watch, that's handy. I'm, I'm out by myself in all of these cases. So... Well, that's a good point. And so we should talk about battery life because I think that's a big issue. But I'm also thinking about let's take it a little bit further. Imagine like an ear pod world with your phone essentially on your wrist. You mm-hmm. may not need your phone then for very much at all when you're just going out casually. Not, I mean, right. like if you're going to be out for a while and want to browse the internet. But if you're just suddenly it becomes kind of like this is the next version of the computer in your hand. Maybe it's the computer in your wrist and then it's kind of compelling. Yeah, it is kind of compelling. They also, and this kind of coincides, because you now have connectivity, you can, and I'm surprised they're doing this because of battery life, you can stream songs directly from Apple Music. So they're saying, hey, you've got 40 million songs on your wrist now. You can obviously take and receive calls, send messages, get notifications. That I don't care about what I'm running. But interestingly, Siri will work. And she can now talk as opposed to today's Apple Watches, you have to look at the screen. So with the connectivity and the boosted speaker, you can actually interact with Siri to ask questions, get directions, and so on without having your phone. So $10 a month, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually thinking about it. I, I prefer it was 5 or included, but there's yeah. a lot of use cases. It was never going to be included, Kevin. So let's, I know, I know. <laughs> let's talk about the battery life because that yeah. is a... <laughs> How far can you run in, what, four hours, three hours? Well, okay, so overall... And Apple's testing, they say you can pretty much get 18 hours on a charge, and they base that on four hours of an LTE connection, 14 hours connected to your phone via Bluetooth. They even say it's, you know, it works out to like 90 notifications, 90 time checks, 45 minutes of app use, and a 30-minute workout with music. I ran two hours on Sunday morning just with GPS and my heart rate, so I need battery life. And I usually listen to music. So again, I need battery life, but... I think 18 hours in combination is fine. You're going to have to charge it every night. That's fine. But when it gets to using the LTE connection to talk, you can do that for about one hour on the watch and then your battery is dead. Yeah. Which, I mean, no one's going to have like a heartfelt conversation with someone with their wrist pressed to their mouth, presumably. I could be wrong. It's a secondary phone device, in my opinion. So I agree with you. You know, like I have, if I have to make a phone call or my family needs to call me in an emergency when I'm out on the roads, it's going to be less than a five minute call. So I'm fine with that. I just want to raise it because I think people should be aware. If you think you're just going to leave your phone behind all day or leave it at home and use this watch as your phone all day, probably not going to work. No. All right. Well, so we don't know if Kevin's going to buy an Apple Watch, but he seems to be leaning towards it. Um, mm-hmm. I assume you'll sell your old one on eBay. Not eBay, but yeah, I'll sell it for sure. Excellent. All right. Let's talk about a nasty new security vulnerability discovered this week, actually. I think, was it this week? Last week. I believe it was this week. Okay. Blueborn, not to be confused with Bluebeard, the murderous pirate, but Blueborn is equally problematic. This is a security flaw that looks at people's Bluetooth connections, and if can connect to it, it will take over your device in some cases, or it will use it to perpetrate a man-in-the-middle attack. So Mm. no bueno. And a lot of devices are still vulnerable. Kevin, you want to talk to us about how many? Yeah, and actually, I'd like to just put this in perspective. Because this affects Bluetooth devices, this is not just like a one-off device type where we've talked before about like connected DVRs and security cameras. This is like anything with Bluetooth in it, which is mind-blowing when you think of the scope of devices that are potentially affected. So we should say this was found in April and released to various companies so that they could patch it. And some have, as, as we were just going to say. Several Android devices, iPhones have already been patched, Windows devices, Linux devices. But we have to keep in mind that not all of those devices, when I think of these as you know phones and tablets, say running Android, not all of them are going to get updated because there's a lot of older phones out there that really aren't supported anymore. But for Google Android, it will be available for Android 6.0 and up. So that's good. If you've got an older phone, there could be issues. Let's see, Samsung Galaxies, LG Watch, uh, Pumpkin Car Audio System, these all run Android. So these are all impacted devices. Apple's not immune to this. They have patched it. And the nice thing is with Apple, roughly 80-90% of those devices, consumers just upgrade the software when they get a security update. You know, it's much less fragmented. There's not as many device types. So I think Apple's in a better spot here than, say, a Google or another device maker. My bigger question is, what happens to IoT devices in the house, like Bluetooth locks and such, where we typically don't update the software or it's not made available to us, these updates from the, the manufacturer? 
Well, I was going to say, here's, yes, I imagine that if you're a Bluetooth lockmaker, you're going to be on this, at least at the public release. Maybe you didn't get a call back in April, because that's another thing. If you're a security firm, you know, you can't notify everyone, right? If you're going to try to do something behind the scenes and proactively, you can get the big guys, but you can't call every Bluetooth lockmaker. Logistically, I agree with you, but all of those devices should be registered through the Bluetooth SIG, and I wonder if they should help coordinate. Maybe they do. I do not know. That's an interesting point. So I was going to say that Linux is also affected, and mm-hmm. they talked about the most commercial and consumer-oriented platform for Linux is Tizen, Samsung's operating system, which mm-hmm. means this is going to affect your Samsung the Gear S3 smartwatch, your smart TVs, and your smart refrigerators. And this is where it gets interesting to me, because Samsung will probably push out updates, I would hope. But as anyone who sat there and wanted to watch TV turns on their television and is like, update now or later, you're like, I got my popcorn ready. Later. Later. And I don't even later becomes never. Exactly. And I don't want to even think about a fridge because like I I have had fridges in my home that I've owned for ten, even eleven years. And I don't know if Samsung's gonna patch the eleven year old fridge. I've got a little information to maybe give an indication if they will. Okay, tell me. Okay. I just noticed in the report that Armis, the company that actually found this, they shared details on who they contacted and what the response was. So Google was contacted in April and they have updated Android software as of September 4th. Microsoft also in April and updates are made in July. So that's good. Apple was contacted in August. And I'm going to just clarify something as I thought that vulnerability affected them. Apple had no vulnerability in its current version. So they may have pre-patched. They may have done something before August. But here's the interesting relevant part. Samsung, I'm just going to read this out loud. Contact on three separate occasions in April, May, and June. No response was received from any outreach. All right, Samsung. I know there are people at Samsung who listen to this. You guys, Mm -hmm. if you want to be a credible IoT vendor to consumers and businesses, because we're going to talk about later, that's a goal here, that is unacceptable. You should have, if you don't already, and maybe they couldn't find it, a bug bounty program. And you should have a way for security people to contact you, because that's how a lot of these things are being found nowadays. And some of the vulnerabilities are really nasty. Yeah. And it's even better to have a response, whether it affects you or not, because that at least explains to people that you're looking into it, you're aware of the situation, and you're either doing something or you don't need to do something about it. Right. A message received would be good. Bingo. Because yes, if people know that you have policies and you should advertise them because let's say you say, hey, if we get your vulnerability, we, you know, will acknowledge its receipt. Then Mm -hmm. people, if they don't get the acknowledgement, they will look for other ways to contact you. Otherwise, they're just like, like any reporter will tell you, you know, you send out the inquiries into the ether. And then suddenly, if you don't get anything back after a while, you just stop. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Samsung, not cool, man. Not Mm -mm. cool. All right. They're coming up later. Let's talk now about something not as scary, but consumers are not pleased by this either. So what this is, is last week, Chamberlain put a message on its IFT page, basically saying that if you want to connect your garage door to a service like IFT, or even possibly Google Home, you're going to have to pay a dollar a month. And the outrage was not tremendous, because I don't know how many people are like, own this device, although I do, and want to connect it to IFT. But the people who noticed were not pleased. (laughs) No, no, they actually reached out to us on Twitter. And that's how we found out about it. And I wonder if a lot of people even do know about this yet. Yes. So I sent some questions to Chamberlain yesterday, trying to figure out the Twitter account for Chamberlain was like, yes, we are charging for that. So it is a real thing. They didn't acknowledge the upsetness of the person who tweeted it there. But they acknowledged that it was happening. So I asked them what services they were going to start charging for, why, and didn't hear back. So Kevin, Mm. in the absence of Chamberlain thinking about this, Kevin and I had some thoughts. And Kevin actually did the research. So go, Kevin. Yeah. As soon as I saw this on Twitter, I started digging around the IFT page and I noticed that they had a link for partners. And I'm like, ah, I wonder if Chamberlain is now a partner. And what does that really mean? Because I didn't know. Anybody, any listener, if you want to create your own, if this, then that recipe and all that, you can certainly do that. And there's no charge, right? With that, that has not changed. But if you go into the partner program, we noticed that there are two pricing tiers that 
partners have to pay. And one is $199 a month, and that allows a partner to create a single service and its triggers, and therefore, you know, make that available as a service and so on. I don't think that's what Chamberlain is doing. I think they're in the Partner Plus program, because what Partner Plus does is it gives you the ability to make multiple products and services available with triggers and ift, gives you an unlimited number of end users, you get a dashboard, you have prioritized server space and SLAs. The SLAs are important. Yeah, the SLAs are important. Exactly. So it sounds to me like Chamberlain has probably done this, taken advantage of the Partner Plus program, and that gets into the pricing. And it's a minimum of $499 per month that's billed annually. And that minimum is because the price will vary based on company size, number of services, and customizations. So Chamberlain is paying at least $500 a month, I suspect, to offer the IFT integration. And how are they going to recoup some of that? Well, it looks like they said, yeah, let's start charging people a buck a month or $10. I think it's a $10 annual fee if you want to do it that way. So while I get it, I understand the need to make money back. This really comes back again to the question we keep talking about. Are you buying hardware or services? You know, when you bought a Chamberlain MyQ, Stacey, you didn't expect that you would have to pay this, for example, if you wanted to connect, right? I didn't. Now, when I bought the MyQ, I will admit that it was a long time ago before. Mm -hmm. I don't think it actually had an IFT integration because the Chamberlain guys were worried about it from a security perspective. So it was highly demanded, but it didn't actually exist. So Mm -hmm. when I bought it, it's not like they're taking anything away from me. No. It is, I am sure, galling for people who were like, oh my God, I can't wait to connect this because it's a connected thing. And being connected means you should be able to use these platforms like IFT and Google Mm -hmm. Home and the Amazon Echo. And so that I could see being frustrated. But I as a user, and I'm not, Mm -hmm. I can't fault them for doing this because integrations take developer time. They're going to take a continual amount of developer time because IFT will make platform updates and they have Mm -hmm. to respond. Plus there's the $6,000 a year minimum to be a partner. Right. Um, when you start multiplying that out across lots and lots of different services, it does make mm-hmm. sense to start charging something. Right. Plus the partners have scalability included in this. So as they get more users or add devices, they'll have more server space, more dedicated bandwidth and so on. I mean, there's resources involved here as well. But you know, if you bought your device thinking you were buying a connected device that would open up this entire new world and suddenly that world seems not mm-hmm. to open for you without more money. Mm-hmm. I can see how that's frustrating. I feel that way actually yeah. about my doorbell having an additional charge on it to get historical views, like mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll pay for extra, you know, an extra, like a 24 hour period to see my videos. Great. And I'll pay for anything beyond that. But it does irk me that I'm like, oh, so basically I can talk to my person when they're outside my door and that's it. And if I miss it, oh, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I get it, but. Yeah. So again, maybe Chamberlain will clarify in the conversation that you're having with them, the communications, I should say, and we can get some information. I suspect we should probably prepare ourselves for other IFT partners that are going to have to charge unless they're going to eat these costs in the future. Eat the costs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So we have a startup that I have followed for a while because I knew its founder, Jesse Robbins, who is the founder of Chef, which is a cloud configuration management system. And if you guys are like, what the heck? Just ignore it. The point is, I've known him for a while. A couple years ago, he started a push-to-talk device company called Orion. And this company, basically, you got a little microphone speaker thing, you clipped it onto your shirt or your lapel, and you push it, and you say something, and then a team member who's part of that circle gets to hear it. And I like walkie-talkies. I think they're fun. So I liked the idea. And now what they're doing is real-time translation over this thing. And I actually thought that was a really powerful thing to put on a walkie-talkie-like device that is you know, just attached to your lapel. But Kevin says... Hmm. I fail to see why people keep trying to, or companies keep trying to reinvent things, add-ons or standalone devices when all the functionality could easily be done with the phone that you would likely already have. Because this tech is very cool. Don't get me wrong. I know you like it, Stacey, and you showed me the video and it definitely changed my mind as to what they're doing here. But these are little clip-on microphone speakers that you press to talk, push to talk. They're Bluetooth connected, so you can only do this from, you know, within 30 feet or so of your phone. It actually goes back to your phone and there's an app to help with the translation and so on. So you're already relying on a phone. I'm just struggling why they're doing another device approach, to be honest. I think to me, I'm excited because it's hands-free. 
or mostly hands-free. So I don't have to hold my phone. If my phone's in my pocket and it's on and I'm trying to communicate with someone doing real-time speech-to-text, it's going to be muffled because it's in my pocket. So that was my thought process. I'm like, this is just clipped onto your body. You just hit it and you're like, hello. Yeah, and I get that. I do. It's to that extent, it's, you know, a little wearable device. I don't know if you have to push to talk before you say everything, or it's just a one time on and one time off. But I mean, again, they're leveraging the cloud and the phone for and the app for all the communication bits and so on. So to me, it's like my phone can be used hands free. It's already got the mic and the speaker and the Bluetooth built in. Why do I need another mic and a speaker for this? And I think it's I don't know. I'm like, I think the functionality is compelling enough that you could argue for it. So this was just a moment of Stacey and Kevin disagreeing. (laughs) So let's. Which is not often, by the way. It's sad how, how simpatico we are in this. Ah! So let's do some quick news bits before we get to our voicemail question du jour. Or actually, I guess it would be du semaine of the week, but just took us in a fancy direction. So Samsung. Samsung which we have talked about earlier, has joined EdgeX Foundry, which you don't have to remember this, but this is an industrial IoT middleware organization, which, again, not the sexiest thing in the world, <laughs> but crucially important. I like this project. It feels to me like what Pivotal was for cloud computing. And while people still don't use Pivotal, like enterprises do, but like Amazon and all of those guys are like, eh, we've got our own cloud. We don't care. These guys for industrial IoT, I feel like it's probably going to be really relevant because not everybody wants to put all their industrial secret data in the cloud like Amazon's and even Mm -hmm. Azure. So EdgeX Foundry might play a really important role. It may not, but I'm actually really optimistic about it. So Samsung joined it and they did it because they want to do their industrial IoT and make sure it is applicable to all of the potential industrial customers. So they have been working with like OCF, which is the Open Connectivity Foundation. Mm-hmm. And this is just kind of adds on to that. So just just a little news bit. I suspect that they also are doing this because it's less of a compartmentalized approach like some of the other vendors that you mentioned. It, this is a Linux Foundation project, and Tizen is Linux-based, and that's Samsung's IoT platform. So I think they don't want to be shut out in terms of industrial IoT when it comes to Tizen. Indeed. So, Samsung, get your security game in line. <laughs> All right. We also have a Kickstarter project that mm. is monitoring. It's called Glow. It is for energy monitoring. And Kevin, why don't you tell us? Yeah, this came across my radar this past weekend. It is still an open project if you'd like to back it. Um, It's an all or nothing project as well. So it's only funded if it reaches its goal by oh Friday, geez, September 15th. Um, It did reach the goal. So the goal was 75,000. It's up to 96,000. And it's funny, Glow reminds me when I look at the device itself, it reminds me a lot of a Google Home device. It has the same similar air freshener shape, but it doesn't do anything except show a light. And that light will be ranging in color from green to red, depending on how much energy you're currently using in your house. And that's the other piece of this. There is a a device that you put on top of your outdoor smart meter. And that sensor uses magneto-resistance technology to wirelessly measure your power usage. So it's simple to install and, and use. And when you're using a lot of juice, then the light's going to be red. Um, there's also a web-based dashboard so that you can see in real time, you know, if you fire up your air conditioning, your heat, you'll see a jump or a spike in that and so on. The thing about this, I do find this very interesting. Obviously, I wouldn't have brought it up. We've seen other more complex systems that offer far more information. And I think Stacey, do you still have a system like that that gets down to the circuit level? I do. I don't have it on anymore because, and here's my issue. All of these things are like, yo, you're using a lot of energy. But I have taken as a homeowner almost all the steps I can without Mm -hmm. really impacting my quality of life, right? So Mm -hmm. I've swapped my LED things, but I'm not going to keep my air conditioner at 80 in the middle of the summer. It's just not going to happen. No, I, I totally get that. I think if you've gone as far as you and I have as well. It's more of a behavioral thing like, hey, did somebody leave lights on or something? Because we're using a lot of juice that we don't normally use here. Yeah, we've automated the heck out of our house. So we don't usually have that anymore. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not against this. I think at Cedia, I saw some more interesting energy monitoring things. So Savant, which is a professional installer product, had a really interesting system that could plug into your, all of your breakers and control them. So like mm-hmm. if you went over to generator power, you could say, hey, you know what? I want my generator only to power my fridge and my freezer. And actually that you could do if you hardwired things. Like my dad is a double E and kind of crazy. So he hardwired his generator to do that. But for most people, that's not going to be an option. So that's really interesting. Right. There was also some interesting battery storage options. Like Sonnen has one that it allows you to automatically dictate where the power Power from that battery is going to go, which again is super cool, especially if you have like an event like a Hurricane Irma or something like that. Anyway, I was like, ah, this is kind of cute. It'd be good for kids. Like I could see installing one in a classroom at a school to kind of educate people about this, but I didn't think it was, I didn't want one. Yeah, the glow's not for me either. I mean, I do think it's very interesting, but you and I are at a different stage when it comes to home automation and energy monitoring. For somebody who is new to energy monitoring and doesn't have a lot of devices that can already you know, be automated to help reduce electricity, it might be worth it. This, though, is going to cost you $199 right now, which is 30% off the expected retail price. So it's not cheap. It's not cheap. How much energy does it consume? Wah, wah. It's an LED bulb inside, at least. It's, oh, that's good. I give, I give him that. All right, let's take a question from our hotline. But first, let us tell you what our IoT hotline is. It is, the number is... 512-623-7424. Awesome. So call us with your questions. And this week, we have a question from... Kevin. Yeah. (laughs) Not not, not me, though. Not that Kevin. This is not a ringer question. Kevin from Raleigh. Hi, Stacey and Kevin. Another Kevin in Raleigh, North Carolina. And yes, you can use this on the air. I'm in possession of about a 15-plus-year-old home security system that is not very high-tech but works fine. And what I'd like to do is do away with the dialer and monitoring costs and leverage that for newer Internet-based and wondering if there's a way to bridge the two. I know it matters a lot as to which ones, but kind of generically, Can we use that as an uplink instead of the cellular options they provide some kind of a internet connection? Thanks a lot. Look forward to uh, more info. Okay, Kevin, that is a tough question, but probably a really common one. And we are going to punt a little bit because we think your best option is probably to rip and replace. I'll be honest. You may have to make an investment, but you could get rid of that monitoring fee if you wanted to. Yeah, that's definitely an option. I mean, I hate to say that when there's probably a lot of wired sensors that are still good. Obviously, you say they still work and everything works well, but you're paying a service fee to somebody and so on. Plus, you're stuck on a dial-up line for the connectivity of that system. Again, if you want to keep what you want, that's fine. There are actually options to do that. Depending on your service provider, I don't know if it's ADT or some other similar service, they will likely offer you at a very low cost or maybe even free an option to switch from dial up to cellular for the monitoring bits. So that way you don't need to have the landline. You can kind of upgrade it. You'll still obviously pay your service fee, but at least you can do that. You can also look into options to do that yourself, such as using devices like the UMA or the Magic Jack, which will switch you from cellular use to voice over IP. But again, if you're trying to get rid of the service fee, I hate to say it, but it's going to be really tough to do with a 15-year-old system, in my opinion. I mean, you, unless you want to do some heavy-duty coding and monitor these old systems yourself, frankly, I think it's well worth your time and effort to just to upgrade it. Yes. If you are technically minded, I believe Asterix has, you can look for some code that you can use using Asterix that will actually communicate with the wired alarm system as a dialer. But again, mm. that's... That's pretty hardcore. If you want to go hardcore, though, that's where you should start your search. It comes down to what are you going to do with the data from that system then if somebody else isn't going to monitor it? And because it's old data, old protocols, old approaches, old, it's going to be a challenge. I just, I really don't know that it would be worth it in the long run. But if you want a new security system, we have some options for you. Abode is actually a very good one. You will have to buy it and install it, but it's very easy to install. I've heard lots of good things about it. Safe, a lot of people like it. It does have yep. a monitoring component, but it is... Less cheaper. expensive per month. Yep. Yeah. And another option that 
If you want to keep a monitored security system, you could also call someone like an alarm.com and see what they will do because they may be able to provide an integration kind of from the old sensors to a new platform, which mm-hmm. is kind of like what we were talking about before. But Alarm has the added bonus of working with a lot of connected devices out there. And actually, I mean, I used to have an ADT system, exactly what Kevin is describing. And I wasn't thrilled with the paying the monitoring service after a couple of years. So today, just throwing it out there, I'm using my Wink Hub, which is relatively inexpensive, a bunch of different door window sensors and a Nest Cam, and I monitor it myself. There is no fee for any of that. So I can check in on the system at any time from wherever I am, maybe even from an Apple Watch if I have cellular, who knows? It wouldn't be that expensive to change out depending on how many things you need monitoring. If you've got 50 windows and five doors, obviously it's going to add up quick, but depending on how you do it or how much you need, it can be relatively inexpensive and doesn't cost you a monthly fee. Right. And you could also do things with motion detection that you mm-hmm. know, used to be you'd have to have a like a window sensor. So thinking outside the box there, you could also buy like a canary and just stick that in your house and see what happens. Yep. So many options, none of which are exactly what you're after. But hopefully this gives you the direction depending on how you decide to play this. You have some you, sh- you have some paths to pick. Mm-hmm. So that is it for this part of the show. But stay tuned for a message from our sponsor and for our guest, David Martins, who is a jolly old Australian. He's, <laughs> you'll tell that right away. And we're going to be talking about how to build a distributed and resilient energy grid using the blockchain. Yeah, it's a really timely one given kind of the catastrophes that we've experienced recently in the US. And also because, you know, blockchain is like, oh my God, the hottest thing ever. So mm-hmm. you'll enjoy it. It's super fun and really thoughtful interview about the future of our energy system. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone, we are breaking into the Internet of Things podcast with a message from our sponsor, ForgeRock. I've got Ashley Stevenson here, who is the Identity and Technology Director at ForgeRock. And we're going to talk about personalizing cars using ForgeRock's digital identity management platform. ForgeRock is working with auto manufacturers like Toyota on a bunch of digital initiatives. Why is identity technology needed in connected cars? It is really needed more now than ever before because of something that is disrupting the automotive industry, and they're calling it new mobility. But essentially, new mobility is about auto manufacturers needing to monetize services through their vehicle platforms, just like Apple did with their apps and their music. And in order to do that, the auto manufacturer needs to know who the user is inside of the car, not just for personalization, but also for monetizing other services and enabling payments through the vehicle platform. Wow. That is a lot of really cool things I'm anticipating through my vehicle. So we're hearing more about the automotive-grade Linux project. Can you tell us what that's about and what role Fordrock is playing? Absolutely. So Automotive Grade Linux is an organization under the Linux Foundation, and it was put together by a consortium of different automotive OEMs to basically cut the cost initially of the infotainment system in a vehicle that was engineered separately on each different build cycle and to have instead a secure baseline operating system that's Linux-based for vehicles that any auto manufacturer could build on top of and customize with their look and feel but that they would get a secure baseline operating system on top of which they could build. And Fordrock joined AGL a couple of years ago, and we have become the identity layer of automotive grade Linux so that vehicles can actually be identity aware and can authenticate users and understand who the user is in the context of the vehicle, not just the driver, but also the passengers, and not just for vehicles that they own, but maybe for a vehicle that they're renting or just borrowing for a day. Now, I'm not sure the general listener understands how complex the overall connected car environment will be. Can you talk to me about what's going on with vehicle to cloud, vehicle to vehicle, and vehicle to infrastructure use cases? So personalization inside the vehicle is only half of the battle. Because the connected car is essentially a node on the internet, once that cellular radio goes live, every vehicle is essentially a rolling IoT ecosystem. And to that end, the vehicle itself and all of the components inside of the vehicle also need secure digital identities and relationships between each other in order to secure their activities. And so for a vehicle to make a call to a cloud service or for a cloud service to send a secure over-the-air update to a vehicle, or if we imagine things like vehicle to a traffic signal or vehicle to parking, all of that information has to be trusted. And trust comes back to understanding the identity of, of an attribution of what that vehicle itself actually is. 
All right, that is a lot to digest. Where can I go to find out more about Forge Rock and connected vehicles? Head over to ForgeRock.com, and under one of the dropdowns, we have a specific page dedicated to our connected car activity. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is David Martin, who is the CEO of PowerLedger. Hi, David. How are you doing? Hi, Stacey. I'm really well. Thank you. Awesome. So I have been told that I always tell people that I'm really excited to have you on the show. So today, I am not really excited. I'm ecstatic to have you on the show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ecstatic to be here. Excellent. So we are going to talk about something near and dear to my heart, which is blockchain and renewable energy. So yay. All right, David, you're the CEO of this company, PowerLedger. Why don't you tell us what it is that you're trying to do here? We're trying to become the distributed ledger for a distributed energy future. And that distributed energy future is typically renewable, and it's typically owned by the citizens of the world. So what we're trying to do is put the power to manage the energy system back in the hands of everyday people. Oh, my gosh. The power to the people, both literally and figuratively. All right. So you guys have started out with a trial in Perth, Australia. Walk us through what this looks like. So we actually started our trial phase in October last year, and our first trial was in a place called Busselton. It's about 200 kilometres south of Perth, and it was in a a lifestyle village, and we had, I think, about 20 consumers, some with PV and some without, and we installed monitors in each of their power meters, and we started reading how much energy they were producing and consuming as a group. Were these people living totally off the grid? They were tied into an embedded network. So they were part of a a lifestyle village and that village had a single point of connection to the local grid and then an embedded network that supplied uh, almost a private network, I guess you could say, that supplied all of the consumers in that embedded almost microgrid scenario. So some of those consumers had PV panels already and when they spilled energy into the network, they weren't getting anything for it. So they were only making money off their solar panels on the roof when they were home to consume that energy. So what we tried to do is give them an opportunity opportunity to say, rather than just spilling that energy, we direct that into a a pool where we've got a, a pool of available energy buyers who could buy the energy and then remunerate the generator for their trouble. So we use the blockchain to disintermediate the whole energy supply chain process. We put a user to put a generator directly in touch with a consumer and our process then in real time measures generation output, consumption, pins those two things together as a physical transaction. And because of the blockchain giving us an immutable record of all the terms and conditions and values in that transaction, we're able to tie a financial transaction to it as well. So instead of saying to a customer, you're not going to get anything for your energy that you're spilling into the grid, we can say you can sell it to your next door neighbor for 15 cents. And then your next door neighbor, rather than saying you have to pay 29 cents for the energy that you're buying from the grid, how about you pay your next door neighbor 20 cents? And then the gap in the middle goes to funding the local distribution network to maintain it and keep it operating. Wow, that was a whole lot. So we're going to break some things down here. You did a great job explaining why I as an energy generator and an energy consumer might want this. But somewhere in there, there are usually utilities or people who've put an investment in a grid system. And we are still using that grid to send power back and forth, even in this scenario, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Using a local network is really important. Because it's, as you point out, it's a big investment. There's billions of dollars of investment locked up in, in networks around the world. And we're not trying to destroy value while we're trying to disrupt the energy system. What we're saying is that consumers who are using that network are being unfairly charged for the amount of the network they're actually using. And the, the value of their investment in renewables at the edges of the grid isn't being fairly valued. So we're looking at a way of, of making sure that consumers pay for only the amount of the network that they use. And that can directly translate into an engagement or a sales process with an individual in close proximity to them. Okay, so why, though, would a utility want to let you in on their power meters to do this? That's the important thing. So if we look at what's actually happening in energy supply around the world, is that more and more consumers are defecting from the grid in some way. So they're buying less energy from the grid. And if you keep that process going to its almost illogical conclusion, as 
batteries get cheaper, consumers use the network less and less and less. And we've done some research here to look at the cost of running the networks in Perth and Western Australia, the regulated tariff process, and the impact of consumers going off grid with PV and storage. And in about 10 years' time, our local network business will be losing $100 million a year because consumers just aren't buying energy anymore. And that flows through into retail tariffs as well. And retailers lose an even greater percentage of revenues because of that fall in consumer purchasing. The worst thing for the network is that more and more consumers go off grid because network pricing works not like most commodities. As demand falls, the price actually goes up. And so we get this death spiral dynamic that as fewer consumers use the grid, there's a greater incentive for even fewer consumers to to use the grid. And you sort of get this, this spiral effect of load defection. So from a network perspective, allowing consumers to use the network as a training platform is a really strong incentive to keep them connected and to keep the network utilised, at least at the distribution level, and maintain the viability of networks over the long term. Talk to me about the economics. So what do you get out of this? What are you selling? And then what do the utilities get out of it? I understand that, you know, you can tell them, hey, you're not going to die because not everyone's going to leave you. But at the same time, They probably want something today, plus they've got the investment they need to continue making in the local networks. That's right. So what we're able to do is pull out some of the cost associated with the existing power supply value chain, I suppose. So when you're buying electricity, you're buying a combination of energy, of energy transport at a transmission and distribution level. You've got a whole bunch of market operation, retail operations and retail margins. So what we're trying to do is pull out as many of those costs as we can so that those costs can be shared with the, the generator and the end consumer. We need to understand what it actually costs to use just, say, 50 metres of the distribution network at the edge of the grid so that we can say this is how much it, it costs to wheel energy a kilowatt hour from, from your house to a neighbour two, two doors down the street, as well as to maintain that piece of the network and to maintain some of those other services that networks provide, the, the higher level services around system stability and redundancy and security and those sorts of things. Um, those prices, those costs need to be worked through. And that's the purpose of some of the trials that we're doing to understand if a consumer is only using a really small slice of the distribution network, what actually is a fair price to charge them for doing that? Bearing in mind that if we don't get that right, the alternative for the customer is to say, thanks, but no thanks. I'll put a battery in my garage and I'll see you later. Well, and we've also discovered that there are a lot of hidden costs that they may be hidden costs, they may be actually be externalities associated with some of this disintermediation. So I'm thinking about things like, you know, the health and safety of workers with Uber taking the share of ride sharing and taxi driving. So what do you see? Like, when I hear you talk about this, I worry about like, the costs associated with operating the backbone, the big nationwide grid, as it were. So what we have at the moment is an energy market that is splitting down the middle. And we've always operated it the same way. We've always had the view that large-scale generators exist somewhere a long way away where you can't hear them or smell them or see them. And they push electricity through transmission systems and distribution systems to deliver electricity to your front door. And that's the way the, the physical system has always looked. But it's also the way that the market frameworks have operated, the way the regulatory frameworks have operated. But now in the last 10 years, as more and more consumers have installed power stations on their roofs virtually, and there's more of an input of of distributed generation out where the consumers are, that whole market model doesn't make sense anymore. It only makes sense for part of the industry. So trying to force the small players to play out by the big market rules doesn't make sense. Trying to create market rules that force the big players to operate in the same way as the little guys do doesn't make sense either. So what we need to do is take stock of what the market actually looks like. We have a primary and a secondary market in electricity like we do in a lot of other commodities. So we just need to sit back, take a deep breath and understand that this change is happening. The genie's out of the bottle. Consumers will continue to do what consumers do. But we need to change the the market frameworks and the regulatory frameworks to reflect the fact that the system doesn't look like it's always looked. Okay, so we've got this bifurcated electrical market. And on one side, we've got the long haul generation and transmission. On the other side, we have microgrids, local PV, neighborhood based things neighborhoods that have access to renewables and possibly battery storage that could create their own market internally. Absolutely. Right. Because you're going to need to still call on the larger generation facilities, you know, in the middle of the night, if the wind isn't blowing, that sort of thing, right? 
You may. We use electricity to keep our fridges running and our TVs on and our lights on, those sorts of things. So electricity, we don't use it for electricity's sake. We use it for the amenity that we get from it. And if you take the kind of the analogy of security a step further, we don't need to have huge backup TV systems or huge communal backup fridges. We, we take some risk there because there are markets available and services available that mean if our fridge breaks, we can replace one or we can whistle one up pretty quickly. And the same goes or will go in the future for energy supply. So we can't really limit our future thinking of the energy system by the kind of the existing framework to say that we will always need large-scale backup or we will always need some form of redundancy somewhere. We'll probably always need some form of alternative, but what that looks like and the shape it takes in the next five to ten years is completely different. I and mean, if you said five years ago, you wouldn't need a taxi because the guy next door to you has an Uber and you can call him up on your phone through an app and get him to deliver you where you need to go, it wouldn't have made sense. Now we're really used to Uber. And if you take that analogy and say, well, my battery is running down. I've had three days of really heavy cloud and I've used all my energy and I've got no energy storage in my battery. But if I can use an app to get somebody with an electric vehicle to pull up in my driveway, plug in and discharge his battery into my battery, that's the sort of redundancy, the sort of market for energy that we're going to see in the future. Again, before we get into the technical stuff, which I promise you we will do, what happens when you have something like Irma or Harvey or something, when you have like a massive situation, and maybe this doesn't happen with PVs or renewables, I don't know, because that's what people build the grid for today. So in this model, how should we be thinking about the future and like managing catastrophe, I guess? I think your point is a brilliant one, and I'm not sure if you're aware of the Rev New York program that was developed after Hurricane Sandy. So Hurricane Sandy came through, knocked over transmission systems, and, and New York was black for a number of days. And rightly so, the, the, the governor there said, we can't have this. We're the world's economic centre. We can't have this city without energy. So they, they've created a program that's looking at how you bring distributed energy sources back into the community. And it's not just PV on consumers' roofs. It's as backup generators in apartment buildings or university campuses or hospital campuses and actually bringing the generation back to where the consumers are. So there are two things going on, a number of things going on in in the energy system at the moment. One of them is the switch to renewables, but the other is the switch to distributed generation, whether it's renewable or, or dispatchable generation. It doesn't really matter. If you're bringing generation back to where the consumers are, you're you're making the system more resilient in the face of things like Irma and Hurricane Sandy and those natural catastrophes. All right. And now... Now it is time to get the technical details. I should stress that the reason Dave is on the show is because none of this would be possible without edge-based computing which and connectivity, which is basically the Internet of Things. You can't do this without having some sort of distributed processing and communication network. So just to belabor that point a bit for y'all. But let's talk about what this entails. We've talked about the blockchain but let's break it down further. What else are you using in addition to the ledger and where does it live? We read all the meters all the time. So we can tell how much a consumer is consuming, how much a generator is generating. We can pair those two inputs and outputs together using the blockchain as an immutable record and a permanent historical record of the transaction that's taken place. And because we have that certainty around the physical contribution to the transaction, we can then tie a financial transaction to it. And in very quick time, in the energy interval or the market interval in which the energy is produced and consumed, we can tie a financial transaction to that as well. And the blockchain aspect of this is part of your software. So you've got your software that runs in the cloud that's part of the trading platform. Yes, that's okay. That's figuring out pricing and that sort of fun stuff. And you've got, is it Ethereum? Is it Bitcoin? Is it something you built yourself? It's something we built ourselves. So we use a private blockchain called EcoChain, which we created ourselves. It's a proof of stake blockchain. And we use it as a closed loop trading environment. So we have trusted nodes recording data to that blockchain. And if we don't have enough nodes on the blockchain to give the sufficient security that we need, we can tangle that data with the Bitcoin blockchain, for example. But having it as a closed loop gives consumers and regulators and banks a level of comfort that the energy that's being traded for our transactive token, a Spark, is not being used for uh, any other purpose. It's just being sold to a next door neighbor for a value. And that value can be redeemed through an application host or whoever's hosting the trading environment for cash. But a consumer who's buying energy in that 
environment can log into the PowerLedger site. They can pre-purchase these transactive tokens in the same way that you buy mobile telephone minutes. You can buy tokens that represent the value of energy. We call them a spark. And they are pegged to the, the lowest denomination of the local currency, so one US cent where you're from. And then if the terms and conditions of the trader, that if I buy your energy for, for 20 cents and you get 15 cents and then the network gets five cents, then I will transfer 20 sparks into that environment. You will get 15 of them. The network will get five of them. And they will go straight into the networks and your online wallet. And over a period of time, as you accrue a significant volume of sparks, you can go back through the system almost in reverse of the purchaser and redeem those sparks for cash. Oh, okay. So there is sparks for cash at the end, because I was thinking about the poor utility who's going to have all these useless sparks. Every trading actor within that trading environment will be able to exchange kilowatt hours for sparks. And then as they exit that trading environment, the sparks are then redeemed for cash. And that cash is crude from the initial purchase of sparks. So we reduce the risk of non-payment because you've got to prepay your energy. We also improve cash flows because if you imagine you're the network and you're getting five sparks for every kilowatt hour that is being transacted on that platform, your balance is going to ratchet up really quickly. So you can cash those in every day, every two days, rather than waiting 60 days or three months to get paid for a consumer's use of the network. So it improves the cash flow position of network businesses as well. I can see that. Okay. That was really awesome. So from your perspective, are you guys a tech company? Are you a financial company? Are you an energy company? How do you think of yourself? We, we have this argument in the office all the time. Are we a blockchain company or are we an energy company? I'm the energy guy in the business, so I've got a particular bias. But I think one, one of the things that strikes me around the blockchain movement at the moment is that it's a remarkable piece of technology. It allows you to do some amazing things. But if you're not directing it towards a particular opportunity or addressing a particular problem, then in many respects, it's just a solution looking for a problem rather than a problem looking for a solution. With the energy issue, we came from the energy perspective. We saw load defection and falling utilisation of networks as a problem. We saw apartment buildings that couldn't find a governance framework that allowed tenants to install PV as a problem. And we realised that the blockchain was a really good solution to those two problems. So from my perspective, we are an energy company that uses the blockchain um, to provide a solution. Well, and I ask because I'm very curious what you think all of the currency speculation, I, I don't know how else to put it, but the currency speculation around blockchain, specifically Ethereum and Bitcoin kind of what that means for a company who's trying to use this for, I think it's kind of the intended purpose, which is distributed trusted transactions on the internet of things. But that doesn't sell magazine headlines. <laughs> well, we've created our own crypto token. So it's a, a utility token that allows application hosts, whether they're network businesses or apartment building managers, to operate a trading environment um, under license. So the power token would be uh, surrendered or held in escrow by PowerLedger. And in return for those power tokens, we will give the application host the license to use the platform and a pool of sparks to operate a trading environment. And then that trading environment, because the spark is pegged to the lowest form of the local currency, there's no volatility. So we don't get the, the impact of speculation on cryptocurrencies flowing through into that energy trading environment. That way, the consumers are protected from any volatility in the crypto market, but we still get the benefit of a distributed ledger that allows those specific trading environments to become interoperable at a, at a platform level. Awesome. All right. Well, David, this was fascinating, and I really appreciate you going so deep into this topic with me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Anytime. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want more IoT news, you can sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 